Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday English. My name is Laura Marshallsay, owner of Marshallsay English. I'm a historian. I actually worked as a tour guide, and now I teach communication skills, business English, to professionals across the globe, especially those in the tourism, heritage, and museum industries. Last week, we talked about the idea of keeping it simple, specifically within the context of a historical site or museum. This week, I'd like to look at writing texts for art exhibits, which is a much more difficult task because art itself is much more subjective than historical events. Now, when people look at artwork, they can experience it on two different levels what it says to them personally, and perhaps what the artists want them to hear. But how do you connect the feelings of the period, the emotional state of the artist, and the work itself so the visitor understands what they're looking at? Stay tuned and find out. I'd like to start with my core belief when it comes to communication, and I talked about this last week. You have to meet people where they are, not where you think they should be. The language you choose to describe a work of art can mean the difference between visitors getting a new appreciation for your collection or leaving the museum frustrated. To illustrate this point, I'd like to share two texts that describe Pablo Picasso's Portrait of Ferdinand Olivier, painted in 1909. Now, the painting hangs in one of my favorite museums, the Städel Museum in Frankfurt. The text I'm about to read is from the information panel on the wall. This is also the text they use with the picture online. So here is the text. Picasso and his mistress, Ferdinand Olivier, spent the summer of 1909 in the mountains outside Saragossa. In the painting, Ferdinand's countenance emerges from the barren scenery. In the words of Ernst Holzinger, Städel director from 1938 to 1972, quote, the hills and gorges of the spatial landscape are tension-charged. The ridges surfaces, angles of crystalline conciseness, end quote. The painting is among the key works of analytical cubism, which disintegrates the self-contained forms of the objects depicted in favor of an autonomous formal rhythm. Our second text is also from the Städel, but this time it's from the Städel app, which is really good. You go and put the numbers in next to the paintings, and you can read the text on your phone. The app also gives users a choice of seeing the texts in English, German, French, or Spanish. And while the text on the app gives the same basic information, the words have been edited and simplified. So here's the second text. It starts with a quote. 
Everything in art is based on the sphere, cone, and cylinder. This programmatic statement by painter Paul Cezanne was groundbreaking for Cubism, a style developed to a decisive degree by Pablo Picasso. The portrait of Ferdinand Olivier, considered a key work of analytical Cubism, is composed of geometric forms. With broad brush strokes, Picasso breaks the picture down into patches of color, his palette making no distinction between the figure and the landscape. His lover's face merges chromatically with its surroundings. Now, both of these texts are intended to help the visitor understand what they're looking at. When I read the first text, I really have a hard time connecting the words with the painting. And if truth be told, when I was reading it, I had a lot of trouble just saying it. I had to record that part four times. I also wonder why they're quoting Ernst Holzinger. I respect that he was the museum director for more than three decades, but why is his opinion worth posting on the wall? And what exactly are angles of crystalline conciseness? I have absolutely no idea what that means. By contrast, I completely understand the second text, the one that's on the app. The quote is relevant, and it helps me see how Picasso blended the face of his lover with the surrounding landscape. I wondered if it was just me, or did others have as much difficulty with the first text as I did? So to test this, I asked friends to participate in an anonymous online survey to measure how well people understood each text. Now this survey wasn't particularly scientific and only 36 people participated. But the results were really interesting. When asked about the first text, 58% of my respondents said they understood the text completely. But 42% either didn't understand it or weren't sure. That's almost half. When I asked about the second text, a full 78% understood the text completely. Now that's pretty significant. The second text gave the same basic information, but in a much easier way and without dumbing it down. Now, some of the arguments in support of the more difficult texts is that most museum visitors are educated people and can handle the difficult texts. But in my survey, 70% of respondents have a bachelor's degree or higher. Of the people who left comments, only one said she appreciated the more difficult text because it made her think. Several others, including two PhDs, these are university professors, said that while they understood the first text, they preferred the second, because the first text, well, they had to work hard at it. And who wants to do that when they go to a museum? Now, one of the questions that is being asked is, 
do you even need interpretive text for art? And that's a legitimate question. Some curators believe the only information visitors should be given is who created the piece, when they created it, and with what. These curators believe the public can and should interpret the artwork without outside influence. This is the route the Museum of Modern Art in New York decided to take with their Picasso sculpture exhibit in 2016. Rather than labels, the museum gave each visitor a brochure with basic information about each piece. Art historian Christopher Jones described this minimalist approach as an experience where visitors can see the art as, quote, personal responses, connections, and reflections and one in which the gallery, quote, becomes a dynamic area where meaning unfolds as different visitors enter and offer their responses, end quote. Yet he also agrees that without interpretation, art could end up with no meaning at all. The idea of having no interpretive texts is an interesting idea for people who are used to analyzing art in a critical way. I am not one of those people. While I can enjoy a piece of artwork simply for what it is, something beautiful or interesting to look at, I really want the backstory. What was happening either in society or in the life of the artist when this piece was created? What made them choose this subject and depict it in the way they did? One memorable exhibit that did just that was Splendor and Misery in the Weimar Republic, which was shown at the Schien Museum in Frankfurt in 2017. What made this exhibit so great was that the curator met me where I was. She made no assumption about what I knew or didn't know about the period, the artist, or the issues of the day. Instead, she put it all on easy-to-read interpretive panels. The importance of these panels can be highlighted by a painting called Margot, which was created by Rudolf Schlichter in 1924. It's a portrait of a respectable-looking middle-aged lady with bobbed hair and very conservative clothes. She's standing outside with one hand on her hip and a cigarette in the other. She looks confident, but otherwise quite unremarkable. Then you read the text. With utmost naturalist, Margot makes her appearance. Her exterior actually gives away nothing of the way she makes a living. Her short hair is in line with the fashion of the day. Her modest clothing, white blouse and dark skirt, is functional. The whore appears like best buddy. Only the makeup, usually worn for everyday purposes, only by prostitutes or actresses, could give us a hint. This panel, in my opinion, is absolutely brilliant. The wording teased me into looking at the painting again and more closely. It also shocked me. 
I had no idea that when it was painted, only actresses and prostitutes wore makeup during the day. Nor did I know about the desperation that forced respectable women like Margot into prostitution just to feed their families. When I walked into the Sharn that night, the 1920s for me went flappers, Fitzgerald, and emerging feminism. I had a totally different perspective when I walked out. I was so excited by what I had experienced at the museum, I went home to see if I could find out more online. Luckily, the museum had an online digitorial, which had all of the paintings, as well as an article in the Schoen magazine online. Like the exhibit, these pieces were not only well-researched, but they were written in a very accessible way. I read every single word. And I'm now excited to learn more about the art of the 1920s, especially in Germany. And to me, that's what the museum experience should be about. Getting people excited about your subject matter so they want to learn more. So now I'd like to hear from you. What are your thoughts? Do you think that language should be simplified in order to be accessible to most people? And this could be for business documents, emails, websites, or even interpretive panels for museums. Or do you think that by simplifying language, we're no longer challenging people to learn and grow further? Contact me on my website, www.marshallsayenglish.com and let me know. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for joining me this week. If you enjoyed this broadcast, be sure to follow or subscribe to this so you never miss an episode. See you next week.